Good evening. Uh, like uh, Justin said, I'm not an ordained minister. Uh, my name is Luke Regstraw. I work for Campus Outreach at the University of Kentucky here in Lexington. Uh, I've been working there for my seventh fall there, and, and Marshall every now and then lets me preach, especially on weekends like this, three-day, beautiful weekends, people relaxing, and he lets me prepare to preach. So I'm thankful for that. Uh, but I hope you had a, you've had a great Labor Day weekend. Um, it's been it's been beautiful. It's been fun. I, I know the fall can be pretty hectic and pretty stressful getting started, and so hopefully this weekend's been a chance to rest and enjoy the cats winning again. Um, so tonight we'll actually be in Luke 19, 1 through 10, in, in your order of worship. It's actually on page seven. So while you're turning there, um, it can be hard for me or for really any guest preacher to come in and, and speak, even though I go here and even though I know a lot of you all, it's, it's still hard to pop in and interrupt what's been going on. So if you've been here the last two weeks, uh, Hope has kind of unveiled our vision for the fall. We've started a new series in Esther. There's a prayer guide, devotional guide, neighborhood groups are getting started back up. And so you have all these exciting things happening, especially around the book of Esther. And now I come in to completely switch us gears, to completely take us a different direction. And the reason I'm doing that in Luke uh, I'm, I'm in Luke 19 is because Marshall this summer uh, was really impacted by Luke 18 and did a mini series in July and August on Luke 18. And so when he asked me to preach, he said anything but Esther. And I said, OK, we'll just do Luke 19. So that's why we're here tonight. Um, it's actually at the end of the travel section in Luke. And so in Luke's gospel, there is this section called the travel section, which is unique to Luke. It's not found in any other gospel. And in that section, Luke 9 is where it starts. Jesus sets his face to go to Jerusalem. And what that means is in Luke 9, Jesus starts his journey to Jerusalem, to the cross. And so from Luke 9 to Luke 19, you got this journey travelogue of all that Jesus did on his way to the cross. And this comes at the very end of it. This is actually the climax of that whole section. This is the climactic event right before Jesus goes into Jerusalem to die on the cross. And I think it's one of the best stories in Scripture to show us exactly what Jesus came to do for us. And so Luke 19, starting in verse 1, He, meaning Jesus, he entered Jericho and was passing through. And behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he is about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we need your help tonight. Uh, like Justin said earlier, we were distracted. We're busy. We've got a lot of other things going on. And I pray that you would help us still our hearts, that you'd open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word again this evening, that you'd use the power of your spirit and the power of your word to help us see Jesus like Zacchaeus sees Jesus. 
and that you would get everything else out of the way that we might see you. It's in your name I pray. Amen. So it's no secret that everyone everywhere is looking for something. It's universal. It goes across cultures, across generations, different time periods. All throughout history, human beings have looked for something. And although we're in, in agreement that we all look for something, we are in vast disagreement about what we're actually looking for. That's the reason our country is so divided. That's why people are so divided. That's why churches are so divided. We're in agreement about that we're looking for something, but we're in disagreement about what that something actually should be. And people have tried to boil, boil down what it is since the beginning of time. What is it that human beings are looking for? The ancient Greeks, way back when, said it was wisdom. A lot of your all's philosophy classes at the University of Kentucky, or if you've taken a philosophy class, will teach you that. The Greeks were all about wisdom. Jewish people, they were looking for power. They were looking for a Messiah, a political figure that would set them free through power. Fast forward to the founding fathers of our, of our country in the Declaration of Independence. They said that human beings should pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. In modern day, we have our pursuits too. We have what we're looking for as well. Some, some people say it's freedom. Some people say it's purpose. Some people say it's identity, success, love. We have these modern day things that we're looking for, which naturally begs the question, what are you looking for this evening? Especially at this time of year, in the fall, it is, it is, it is a time of, be, of looking for something again. It is becoming a second New Year's in a lot of ways, the fall is, especially with churches. We roll out new visions. We get our, our small groups ready. We do new series. You have the new school year. You have football is back. Starbucks has got pumpkin spice out. It's a lot of exciting things are happening in the fall, and it really is a second New Year's. So with that excitement, with that newness, what are you looking for? Our text is going to help us out with this question because Zacchaeus is looking for something too. What he is going to find, and what I hope you find this evening, is what he is looking for is actually looking for him. The text says that he's looking for Jesus. And so what is it about Jesus? Why is Zacchaeus looking for him? And why should you be looking for him too this evening? Three reasons Jesus is what you're looking for tonight. Jesus sees Zacchaeus. Jesus stays with Zacchaeus. And ultimately, Jesus saves Zacchaeus. And I'll run through those as I go. But the first point, Jesus sees Zacchaeus. This story starts out rather underwhelming, doesn't it? If you look at verse 1, it just says Jesus was just passing through Jericho. Like I said, it's part of that travel narrative. And so Jesus is moving to the cross. And this is just another city for him to pass through in order to get to where he's ultimately going. So it's underwhelming. It's nonchalant. But then in verse 2, you get Luke's words, Behold. And when I, say, when I say Luke, I'm talking about the author Luke. I, I don't speak in third person. I, I hope I'm not that much of a narcissist. So when I say Luke throughout this, I'm talking about the author Luke. So Luke writes in verse 2, he says, Behold. And with that one word, he is trying to get our attention. And with this story, we really need someone to get our attention. It's a familiar story. And with familiarity comes the opportunity to overlook even if you didn't grow up in the church, most people have heard the story of Jesus and Zacchaeus. We've heard about it in Sunday school. We've sang the song. We all love it. And so it's easy to, to overlook a familiar story. But this isn't a story to be overlooked. And, and right from the get-go, Luke says to behold, look at something. And what he wants you to behold in verse 2 is a man named Zacchaeus. And he tells us who Zacchaeus is. He tells us that he's a chief tax collector, and he tells us that he is very rich. 
And tax collectors in that day and age were some of the most hated people in all the land because when they, when, when they would charge their people, the Jewish people, taxes, they would charge them much higher than what they were. They would take money off the top, so they would steal from their people, and they would give that money to the Roman government. So not only were they stealing from their own people for themselves, but they were giving it to the Roman government. And so in this way, they are doubly corrupt. And so it is safe to say that Zacchaeus was probably one of the most hated men in Jericho and, and of all of Israel. But lo and behold, this corrupt little man was looking for Jesus. Verse 3, it says, Zacchaeus was seeking to see who Jesus was. Verse 4, so he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him. But the real irony about this text, and my first point, is that Zacchaeus isn't the only one looking for something. Did you notice that in verse 5? Look at verse 5. When Jesus came to that place, Jesus looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus is looking for Jesus, but Jesus is looking for him. Jesus was supposed to just be passing through Jericho. That's what we learned in verse 1. This was supposed to just be a pass-through. But he stopped and looked, and we need to realize that this is no small thing. How many people do you think were there that day? It had to be a lot. The fact that Zacchaeus is up in a tree shows that it was a lot. You don't just climb up a tree for no reason. You, have, you climb up a tree when you're small and you need to see over lots of people. The Gospels also tell us that whenever Jesus went somewhere, there was tons and tons of people. They were attracted by his miracles. They were attracted by his teaching. And so people from all over would come to see Jesus. In one story in the Gospels, there's so many people there that Jesus says, who touched me? And the disciples say, who didn't touch you? Everyone is touching you. They're pushing it on you so much that how in the world are you supposed to know who touched you? So there's a lot of people there. And Jesus has the audacity with all those people there going to his most important part of his mission, the cross, to take a moment to stop and look at a man. And this was not a casual glance, we know, because Jesus called out his name. Jesus knew this man. He knew who he was. He knew what he did. And he still chose to stop and look at him. And if you read through the Gospels, this is the way Jesus always begins with people with a look. This was the look Zacchaeus had been looking for his entire life. And if we're honest, aren't we looking for the exact same thing here tonight? For someone we look to to ultimately look back at us. Someone we adore to fix their eyes on us. And you really start picking up on this with kids. It is not enough for them to just have fun or just be doing something. They want you to see them having fun and them doing something. You seeing them is actually better for them than what they're actually doing. I, I, I'm going to guess that in the nursery right now, there are some kids in there that are doing something crazy, and they're saying, watch me do this thing that's crazy. <laughs> Just this past week, uh, my daughter's taking swim lessons. Uh, she is two years old. She hates swim lessons, um, but we're still making her do it because it's a good, good thing, I've been told. Um, <laughs> but I was a little late to the swim lessons, and, and she doesn't like them. And when, but when I got there, she was, I could tell she's kind of moping around. But when I got there, her eyes lit up. She started waving, blowing kisses, kicking, jumping, screaming, saying, watch this, Daddy. Watch this. That's her favorite sentence right now. Watch this, Daddy. Watch this, Mommy. Watch me do this thing. And that's us. We don't really ever grow out of that. We want to be noticed. We want to be loved. 
And we know that often starts with a look. There's a pastor at a PCA church in Danville that some of you all might know, Shane Terrell at Grace. But Shane always asks this question when he's in a, in a session, counseling session with someone that I found to be really helpful. He asks, how, how are you imagining God's countenance towards you? Meaning, when you imagine God's face, what is the expression that you see on that face? That expression is important because anyone can look at you, but what's the expression on that face when they look at you? This is, the probably, this is probably the first time in a long time that Zacchaeus was looked at with an expression other than disgust, hatred, or for full-blown contempt. It's the first time that he was looked at with something other than just get out of here. But with Jesus, he sees a different face, and that face is about to change everything for him. So I don't know what you're looking for necessarily in this life, tonight in this room, but there's nothing that beats the look of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Like Lydia, my daughter, we all want someone that we look to to look at us. And in Jesus, God looks at us not out of disgust, not out of frustration, but the Bible says compassion. So Zacchaeus is looking, and he finds first the look of Jesus. But the story doesn't end there. It would have been nice for Jesus to stop and acknowledge him. That would have been enough. But Jesus doesn't just see Zacchaeus. He stays with Zacchaeus. That's point two. Jesus stays with Zacchaeus. After he stops and looks, he calls Zacchaeus down and invites himself over. And may I say he invites himself over rather emphatically. Verse five. Hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. He doesn't say, I would like to stay over, if that's okay with you. He doesn't ask him if he can stay. He doesn't ask for permission. He says, I must stay. I'm coming to your house today, and I must stay there. And we are starting to realize at this point in the story that this, that this isn't just a passing through of Jericho for Jesus. He's not just passing through at all, but at the end of Jesus' journey to the cross, he's going to show us ultimately what he came to do in the life of Zacchaeus. And to understand what Jesus means by staying, when he says, I must stay, and why people would grumble about this in verse 7, why people got so frustrated at Jesus staying at Zacchaeus' house and other sinners' house, you have to under understand the nature of what Jesus is doing in that context. To eat dinner with someone in that day and time was the most personal, intimate thing you could do with another person. It was called table fellowship. And in, in this way, it wasn't merely sharing a meal together like we do when we eat dinner. It was sharing a life together. And in this case, he was associating himself with Zacchaeus' sin and his life of corruption. So Jesus is saying to them, to all those people there, and to us tonight, when you think about Zacchaeus, I want you to associate him with me. I want Zacchaeus' name to be connected with my name. And that made all of them really mad. Because they hated Zacchaeus. And Jesus said, I want him to be considered with me. And it still is, isn't it? Whenever you hear about Zacchaeus, don't you think about Jesus? And whenever you think about Jesus, isn't Zacchaeus not too far behind? And this idea that Jesus associates himself with one of the most corrupt men during that time boggles the mind a little bit, doesn't it? It's hard to get our head wrapped around the magnitude of what Jesus was doing here. So maybe this will help. For those of you that grew up in the 80s, and even if you didn't, you probably know that one of the biggest stories, biggest epidemics, biggest crises sweeping the world in that time was the epidemic of HIV virus and AIDS. No one really knew much about it, so it scared a lot of people. No one knew what to do with it. 
And to a certain degree, most people that contracted that virus were treated in the same way as a modern-day leper, even the children. They were quarantined in hospitals. They were called ugly names. They were slandered. They were not to be touched, and even in some cases, not even to be looked at. They were considered less than human because of their disease. But all of that fear and hatred really started to change in the spring of 1987. Not necessarily through research, not necessarily through treatment or doctors, but actually through a princess who decided to associate herself with the people with AIDS. You all might know this story, but on April 19, 1987, Princess Diana, who was married to Prince Charles, and therefore she was the heir to the English throne, visited a hospital in London, England, and changed the story of AIDS forever. The question that morning when Princess Diana went to that hospital was, would she wear gloves or would she not wear gloves? That was the question everyone was asking. Would the princess wear gloves around those patients or would she not wear gloves? And lo and behold, that morning she showed up without gloves. She talked to them. She called them by their name. She asked them about their life. She hugged them. And one of the most famous photos in world history, she shook the hands of an AIDS patient without gloves, flesh on flesh. And that one photo and that one story with Princess Diana, because Princess Diana touched them and shared in their suffering, people started to ask if the royal princess can share, can share life with these people, why can't we? She brought humanity back to a diseased people that desperately needed help because she was willing to stay with them. She was willing to associate her royal name with, the, at that time, the repulsive name of AIDS. Jesus always made the self-righteous mad. He always did. Because he associated himself with the suffering and the sinners. He stayed with them. Jesus doesn't just see you this evening. He's come to stay with you this evening. And you need to know that. You need to know that Jesus is not going anywhere in your life. That's what the rest of Luke and the rest of the Bible are all about. His death and his resurrection show us that Jesus is here to stay. I'll let the great Baptist preacher Charles Spurgeon explain. Jesus Christ was up on that cross, nailed, bleeding, dying, looking down on the people betraying him and forsaking him and denying him, and the greatest act of love in the history of the universe, he stayed. He stayed. You see, his staying with Zacchaeus is not just a one-time thing for Jesus. This is not just a cute story on the way to the cross. It is a foretaste of everything that Jesus came to do. And the most remarkable thing is that Jesus stayed on the cross for you because he knew he must. He must stay. Because if he left there, there is no hope for salvation. And if he didn't leave then, on the cross, when hell itself and the wrath of God was coming down on him, what makes you think he's going to leave you now? If he didn't leave Zacchaeus with all his corruption, all his sinfulness, when everyone else hated him, what makes you think he's going to leave you in your sinfulness? What makes you think the struggles that you enter in here tonight, I know they're very real struggles, is going to make him go away? Now Jesus is here to stay. Zacchaeus was just looking to see Jesus, and at, that, at this point in the story is realizing that he got a lot more. Because Jesus didn't just see Zacchaeus. He didn't just stay with Zacchaeus. Jesus saved Zacchaeus. That's my third and final point. 
Jesus saved Zacchaeus. You see it there starting in verse 8. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is the son of Abraham, for the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Verse 8 shows that Zacchaeus changed his life because what was really going on is Jesus changed his heart. Jesus saved his life. At the beginning of the story, I mentioned that we are introduced to Zacchaeus as a chief tax collector and that he is rich. And throughout the Gospel of Luke, if you were here when Marshall did some of his uh, many sermons on Luke in, in July and August, we learned that Jesus saves tax collectors. We see that in one of Jesus' closest disciples, Matthew. Matthew is a, was a tax collector that Jesus saved. But the jury is still out right at this point in Luke if Jesus will save the rich. So we know he saved the tax collector because what has already been told to us, but we don't know if he saves rich people. In fact, up until this point in the gospel, Jesus has been really hard on the rich. One chapter earlier, right where Marshall left us in the series, Luke 18, a rich young ruler comes looking for answers and leaves sad because he loves Jesus more than he loves. He loves money more than he loves Jesus. So a rich young ruler comes to Jesus looking for answers and he leaves sad because money is more, more to him than Jesus. And which Jesus responds, how difficult it is for a rich person to enter into the kingdom of heaven. And this blew the people's mind. They responded with, then who can be saved? If the rich people can't be saved, then who can be saved? And Jesus gives one of the most famous verses in all the Bible. What is impossible with man is possible with God. And here we have, one chapter later, the impossible becoming possible in the life of Zacchaeus. A rich man gets saved. Because Jesus does in fact save rich people, because Jesus seeks and saves sinners. It doesn't matter that Zacchaeus is rich. It doesn't matter that he's a tax collector. It doesn't matter who he is or what he's done or where he's come from. All that matters is that Zacchaeus was lost and Jesus came to seek him. All that matters is that Zacchaeus realized he was a sinner and Jesus came to save him. But the problem is, oftentimes, we don't realize this about ourselves. That's why it's hard for rich people to get into the kingdom of heaven. It's why it's hard for us to get into the kingdom of heaven. We don't realize our lostness. We don't see our need when it comes to Jesus. And that's what I want to leave you with tonight. That's, that's my application I want to give you from the, from the story of Zacchaeus. I wish I could do a whole sermon series on Zacchaeus. I would enjoy that. I don't know if you enjoy that all too much, but I would really enjoy it. Because this is one of my favorite stories in the Bible. I think not only does it show us the perfect Savior in Jesus, but it shows the perfect response to Jesus. Zacchaeus received Jesus in faith. Verse 6, he repented of his sins and that he stopped taking from other people and gave it away. And that faith and repentance combo is essential to our relationship with Jesus. But that's not really what I want to talk about with this application. The main application I want you to see from Zacchaeus is what comes before all that. But what comes before the faith, what comes before the repentance, it's his desperation. It's easy to skip over, but look at how desperate Zacchaeus is at the beginning of this story. He is looking for Jesus. He meets the crowds that obviously hate him. They won't let him see Jesus, and he doesn't stop. It would have been so easy for him to stop. He's been hated for a majority of his life. He doesn't want to deal with it anymore. He's, he's lived a life of corruption, of sin. And it would have been so easy for Zacchaeus to make excuses, to say, today is just not meant to be. Maybe I'll get another opportunity to see Jesus later on down the road. But he doesn't stop. In fact, he doesn't just stop. 
he runs up ahead. And that running is one of the most undignified things a man could do in that time period. It was undignified for a man to run. It was embarrassing. You end up showing some of your skin. And especially for a rich man to running, rich men don't run. They don't run after anything. Not only does he run, but he climbs up a sycamore tree. And we sing about this so much in vacation Bible school and Sunday school, and I'm not going to sing it for you all tonight, and you can thank me for that later. But we sing about this so much that we, it loses its initial shock value. When was the last time you saw an IRS agent up in a, uh, up in a tree? <laughs> when was the last time you saw anyone up in a tree and you didn't call the cops? Um, we just, you don't see people up in trees very often. It's crazy. It's ridiculous. It's ridiculous that he's up in this tree. It's embarrassing for a rich man to be up in a tree at any point in his life. And that's the point. That's the point that Luke is trying to show. There is something beautiful about a man who's willing to embarrass himself to get a glimpse of Jesus. There's something really beautiful about someone that will do whatever it takes, no matter how embarrassing it is, just to see Jesus. Just to see him for a second. Because Zacchaeus didn't know what was going to happen. He didn't know. He didn't know Jesus was going to stop. He didn't know Jesus was going to call him by his name. He didn't know that Jesus was going to stay at his house. He didn't know any of those things. Yet he is willing to embarrass himself just to see Jesus. I'm a young man, so take this with a grain of salt. But when I survey the landscape of American Christianity and all the things that we're so worried about within the church, like the decline of the American church, losing the next generation. That I, that's the generation I work with all the time, college students. I hear it all the time. We're just one generation away from losing the gospel in America. So we're worried about that. We're worried about the rise of secularism outside the church that's taking God out of our lives. We're worried, we're worried about the rise of individualism that's making us isolated and lonely people. And I get all that. Those are legitimate concerns and worries, and we should be praying about those things. But what I'm more concerned about and what Jesus is more concerned about throughout the Gospels is not necessarily what's going on outside the church, but what's going on inside the church. I'm mostly concerned that we have totally lost our desperation for Jesus. Living in America, you just don't get desperate for a lot of things. We can kind of figure out everything on our own. So you have a problem, you Google it. You worry about your health, you can go to a doctor, or better yet, Google it with WebMD. Worried about your future, you can secure it, like Justin said, with money. You don't know what to do about something in America, you can kind of just try to figure it out on your own. And these things are all right and all good. I'm not saying anything about those things in, in and of themselves. But what's not good is by doing those things, we have fooled ourselves into thinking that we're not in desperate situations. But what's not good is that we have the ability now to take God out of the equation from most of our lives and we end up doing it. And so we've lost the desperation of realizing that every day when you and I wake up, we are before a holy God with our sin and we have no hope. Because it's not just impossible for a rich man to get into heaven, it's impossible for anyone to get into heaven. That was Jesus' point with the rich young ruler. Zacchaeus had found out that all the money in the world could not buy him what he was looking for. Acceptance with God. No matter how much money he had, he could not find peace with God. And so he was hopeless, and you and I are hopeless, unless, unless God does something. 
And the greatest news in the world is that he did. Which is why Zacchaeus receives Jesus with joy, and it's why Jesus seeks and saves the lost. Not the professional, not the have it all together, not the I've been doing this Christianity for a while now, and I think I've got it finally figured out. He saves those who are desperate, who know their life is hopeless unless God moves. And man, did God move. In Jesus, God moved from heaven to earth. He moved from seeing you to staying with you to saving you. He did that for Zacchaeus. And I pray tonight more than anything that you knew he did that for you too. So the question from Luke 19 is, are you desperate? Whether this is your first time hearing about Jesus or the thousandth time hearing about Jesus, the question remains the same. Are you still desperate for him? Are you still desperate for God and the things of God? Because when you get desperate, you start to seek. And you start to run ahead so you can see Jesus. You'll climb up trees. You'll end up changing your life. Because what you have been seeking your whole life has now been seeking you. You're no longer lost. You're found. Today, salvation has come to this house since he also is the son of Abraham. For the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. Let's pray. Lord, may you right now give us that spirit of desperation that we'd be desperate for more of you and that we could say with the psalmist, who have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Amen.